Hello everyone, welcome to the Defiant Podcast. The internet of money is being built with blockchain technology and without banks. We call it DeFi, short for decentralized finance. And this is where you can hear the builders and users of this cutting edge world tell their stories firsthand. I'm your host, Camila Russo. This week's episode is with Michael Anderson and Van Spencer, co-founders of crypto venture fund Framework Ventures. Michael and Vance live and breathe crypto. They live together, work together, and spend all their time analyzing crypto startups and actively participating in the protocols they fund. Whenever they get a free moment, they'll use it to jump on crypto Twitter. It's how they've become some of the deepest thinkers in the space. They talked about how the emergence of token-based business models in the past year has been a breakthrough for crypto, legitimizing the space as a new asset class. They also discussed how they determine whether a protocol will accrue in value. Vance believes new developments in decentralized exchanges this year will drive 10% of centralized exchanges liquidity. Michael believes the hot new thing, governance tokens, are akin to early startup equity. They also talked about why they love the philosophy driving synthetics and discussed why the underdog mentality of Link Marines is bullish for Chainlink. But first, We'll start with how they got into crypto in the first place. All right. Okay. Um, we have Vance and Michael here. They're co-founders of Framework Ventures. Thank you both so much for joining me in today's episode of the Defiant Podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah. So um, first, uh, we'll, we'll get into uh, Framework Ventures investment thesis, the the uh, different key investments um, the fund has made in decentralized finance and crypto. Um, but just to get to know you guys a, a little better, uh, can you get into uh, your background, where you met, um, and how you became interested in, in crypto in the first place? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I think the start of the crypto journey for us was um, being in San Francisco in the tech industry uh, in 2012, 2013. Um, that was at the time when uh, Ripple um, was really kind of taking off, um, but then there was this whole concept of smart contract platform, um, and we started to get to know uh, Ethereum through reading the white paper really early in 2014, and, mm -hmm. and really that was where our journey took off um, with the ecosystem growing and the ability to, cre to create any program on top of Ethereum. Um, and then after that, uh, Vance and I, uh, we're living in Los Angeles, um, each working for different technology companies, um, and we actually started living together. And I think in one of our first conversations, we both ended up talking about Ethereum, uh, and that's when we knew we'd, we'd probably have a fruitful relationship. Oh, yeah. nice. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, so, so Michael and I's kind of background on the tech side to be more specific. So Michael is a PM at Dropbox and Snapchat. Uh, I did corporate strategy at Netflix uh, first in uh, the U.S. and then in Tokyo for a couple of years. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think what's different about us than a few other different firms or people in the space is that we have a consumer internet background. And we, we look at this stuff through the lens of, you know, this is technology. Like the money side of Bitcoin is, is interesting to us, but like our original draw to Ripple was like, you know, maybe this could be a bank, maybe this could be, you know, a way to do remittances, you know, what are the kind of technology platform uh, kind of implications of, of this stuff. And so that's kind of generally where we approached it. Um, and it's it's been a while. It's been, you know, probably six years since we started thinking that way. And it's just been kind of nothing uh, until now, until DeFi, and until it started to have real product market fit. 
And so, you know, it, it seems like blockchain takes forever to develop and we can, you know, testify to that, but it's, it's very rewarding to see, you know, the kernels of, of a large industry start to form. It's interesting to, to meet people who are getting into the space from the technology side more than the, the currency monetary side of things. So, so what about the, the, the technology was it that really intrigued you? Well, fundamentally, a blockchain enables uh, permissionless value transfer uh, that can be applied to anything worth value, uh, whether it's money, whether it's uh, digital collectibles, uh, we can talk about our Hashlicks experience, mm -hmm. um, or, or whether or not it's uh, a financial transaction involving synthetic assets. Um, the ability to have a permissionless, open, and transparent financial system is really what you can build once you have the ability to have permissionless value transfer. Um, and so as Vance said, we just started to, on a whiteboard, list all the different things that you can do once you start having that capability. Mm -hmm. and, and for us, it felt endless. Um, and it just felt like it was time for us to quit our jobs at Netflix and Snapchat, respectively, and, and go in and be full-time blockchain people. The, wow. uh, yeah. the, the other side of that is like, you know, if you want to build a consumer internet app, you can you know, you can, you know, look at, uh, you can, you can list on the app store, you can distribute it pretty easily, you know, as long as it kind of stays within the confines of the app store guidelines, you're, you're pretty much good for experimentation. And there's, you know, a few different business models you can do, subscription, advertising, you can try different kind of sub-verticals to target in terms of interest, but, but that's kind of the consumer internet side of the world. If you really want to experiment with financial technology and applications, there, there's not a whole lot of mm -hmm. places that developers can go. They can't just, roll up to Goldman Sachs from Morgan Stanley and, and say, you know, listen, I have this new idea for, for a new bond instrument or I have this new idea for a new asset class. They would just mm -hmm. be like, A, who are you? B, like, get out. Um, and, and so, you know, that new sandbox for experimentation and development is really something that was fundamentally new for us um, and that we could kind of see the far-reaching implications of. And so I think that, you know, just the largest total addressable market in the world, which is, you know, finance, and a total lack of experimentation and development, you know, that just felt to us like a like an opportunity for you know that was ripe for disruption. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it is it is huge and um, and just having a permissionless financial system uh, se seems unbelievable, and that it's actually working is even more incredible. Um, so, how was it uh, leaving these huge tech firms, you know, very reputable firms, for an kind of unknown territory of, of blockchain and what, you know, how was that, that jump? Like, were you already um, moonlighting in, in your new uh, crypto company? Like, how was that transition? Yeah, we were, um, so what I would say is probably one of the easiest decisions we've, I think we've both ever made. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of that was because of the fact that we had been so deep within this industry, watching from the sidelines, investing on, on an angel basis and building tools and little features that we felt would be interesting, uh, but never just had enough time to be able to devote to do the things that we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And leaving our respective companies, it, we were already one foot out the door. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so it felt like the right time, the perfect place. Um, and, and it was just a great time to be able to go off and, and work on something that we believed in, but also had an opportunity to really feel like we could push the needle on um, and uh, yeah, that was our, our hashtag experience. Um, we were building digital collectibles. Uh, mm -hmm. We were licensed by the NFL. 
uh, to build football-based uh, digital collectibles. We were the, one of the first, I think, uh, apps in the App Store to have a full Ethereum connection. Um, and we use a lot of that experience and a lot of the, the pains and the scar tissue of that experience to inform our investment decisions now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're one of the, the ones that can sit across the table from an entrepreneur and say, hey, here's what our experience was like building it on top of blockchain. Um, and we understand. And I think that's another differentiator that we have. Mm-hmm. Like our, our, our pitch deck for, for our funds, one of the one of the best slides I think we had in there was you know it was a it was a screen capture of the Hashleys iOS app, and we basically circled each of the pain points you know pulling data off chain, getting index data on chain, mm-hmm. um, and, and really like our investment theses are are tied to the pain points that we've had before, and so I think a lot of the thinking from an investor perspective in the space is very top down. So like, what's the total addressable market? You know, if Bitcoin can become 10% of gold, if Ethereum can become 1% of AWS, like we're very much bottom up. Like we like to think through the problems in very specific detail as they relate to each entrepreneur's kind of challenges and what they're trying to do. So I think that, you know, that's something that we have that not a lot of other firms have is just like an ability to build products and an ability to really empathize with the, with the entrepreneurs that we're supporting. Okay, definitely want uh, to dig deeper on on your investment thesis now. So, um, when and why did you decide to uh, launch Framework Ventures? I mean, go, go from creating a, a product to to investing in in different products. Um, you know, it, it it it's a big change. So, what made you decide this? And and what uh, what's um, what what drove um, that that uh, that decision. Um, yeah, so I think the first thing I'll say is that you know Michael and I have been investing in the space since 2013. So so I mean you know we have a lot of experience in terms of looking at assessing you know evaluating uh, and executing on deals, uh, and we actually had like a pretty dominant angel run for 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 two years just kind of on our own. So we kind of lagged into you know starting the fund and developing our investment theses. Um, it wasn't just kind of, you know, flipping a switch from operator at a big tech company um, or operator a startup to uh, an investor. Um, okay. So I think we kind of had, you know, the training wheels um, a little bit on the angel side, but, you know, really kind of putting it all together, the, the fund, the LP base, the kind of style of the firm, the investment thesis, you know, executing on deals, like that's a whole other ballgame that we kind of mm-hmm. had to get used to. Um, but you know, that being said, we, we started framework, uh, about a year ago. Um, and we started with you know, 20 million. We're considerably bigger at this stage. We can't really get into how big, um, but you know, our investment theses, uh, you know, was effectively, you know, we had Uniswap at the time, we had compounds starting to gain steam and, and we really kind of looked at, you know, the blockchain ecosystem and said, you know, web three is probably five to to 10 to maybe 15 years away in terms of you know decentralized Twitter and decentralized Facebook, um, but DeFi can provide value right now. Um, and so you know just from that kernel of product market fit, you know we were able to extrapolate out, you know what are the major kind of horizontal categories of products we'd want to invest in. You know where do they sit in a vertical kind of like DeFi stack, whether it's kind of like base layers, then oracles, then liquidity pools, then synthetic asset pools, then you know, so on and so forth. Um, and, and really kind of where we started was was just mapping out the ecosystem and trying to understand not only where a lot of value is, is created, but but where a lot of value can be captured. You know, an example of this is, you know, Uniswap is, a, it is amazing uh, public good, but it's almost like investing in a public park at this point. You know, you're not gonna really be able to extract a lot of value out of it. 
Mm. Whereas some of the other kind of technology layers, they're more value extractive um, in terms of, you know, being able to invest in them as a, as a venture thesis. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's really where we started and kind of where we ended is that, you know, the intersection of automatic market makers like Uniswap, leverage, uh, and synthetic assets is really where the world is, is going to today. Um, we think that, you know, in two or three years, the crypto ecosystem, specifically DeFi, will look a lot like the Forex exchange that exists today. But in five to 10, you'll be able to trade all types of esoteric assets, whether that be Facebook likes or Spotify plays or, or really kind of anything that you can get a price feed for and the collateral pulls back. You know, that will be the first kernel of Web3 that makes that vision real. Um, but, you know, we've kind of changed our, the- we haven't changed our thesis. We've iterated on it a few times, just kind of depending on when things launch and the world changes. You know, a good example of that is Compound last Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we okay. do and how we do it. Um, so is that from, from this mapping of the ecosystem and uh, determining all the different verticals there, there are and the, the different uh, protocols in, in these verticals, is your idea to pick the winner in each and invest in, in one of each? Is, is that kind of where, where your uh, roadmap is taking you? I think a lot of it depends on what the entrepreneur is working on, what they're building. Um, and a lot of these can coexist. I think there are a number of these uh, markets that are not winner take all. Um, it could be winner take most. Some of them like Oracle's we believe are a winner take all market just due to the two-sided marketplace dynamics of an Oracle network of data feeds and payment outputs. Um, but when it comes to things like trading venues, when it comes to things like um, asset uh, AMMs, um, or asset-specific AMMs, I, I think those things um, can be winner-take-most. And so in that case, it's about finding the one or two uh, best players in these ecosystems and backing them uh, in, in a way that um, there are many different exchanges that exist, centralized exchanges that exist right now. Uh, they have different flavors and different features, but really it's the same experience. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the DeFi ecosystem will ultimately end up being the same thing, and, and there will be uh, you know, different venues that have different flavors and different features as well. Okay, and, and you spoke about this, this idea of um, uh, de- determining which uh, protocol has the potential to uh, uh, produce more, more value for, for investors. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do you go go about uh, analyzing that? Like how how, how can you actually um, forecast what what that, that value accrual will be? So I, I think in twenty nineteen, some some in twenty eighteen as well, um, we went through a renaissance of tokens. And what Vance was talking about earlier, and, and sort of the thing that gets us excited every morning when we wake up is that tokens for us represent a blank canvas design space. Uh, We're still working on what governance means. We're still working on what valuation models mean for tokens. But uh, what we saw in in the last 18 months was the ability for tokens to change their business model, for for them to change their token economics. And and in 2017, you would have said that that was sacrilege. That that was an absolute non-starter. But now it's possible for those things to change. And with that change, I think that we're starting to see two predominant valuation methods come to the fore. uh, And that is either in the form of synthetics, where you have a dividend issuance based on the amount of value that's captured within the network. um, And that's distributed to 
participants of the network, whether it be stakers or, or voters or, or what have you. Um, but then you also have this buy and burn model that Maker has uh, created and, and promoted where uh, the value that's created uh, or generated by the network is used to burn a certain amount of tokens, mm -hmm. therefore increasing the percentage ownership of token holders. And for any outside investor, for any person looking at the space um, who comes from traditional financial markets, this is a major box that they can now check. Um, this is how we in this industry go from where we previously were over the last two years to being something that's universally recognized as an asset class that's investable because now we have valuation models. We're not, we're not talking about uh, utility tokens, PV equals MQ anymore. We're, we're talking about discounted cash flows. Um, mm -hmm. And because of that, it, it's going to bring our industry into something where comp uh, and compounds token can be a billion dollar asset um, if they have a value accrual method um, because they're, they're that, that big and they have that potential. Um, and, and that's where we can really start to see D5 put itself on the map. It, to take really Michael's point uh, even further, so so now that you have kind of these value capture mechanisms, whether whether it's buying burn or a dividend. Mm -hmm. uh, so like, let's take the example of, of compound versus DYDX, and and which one uh, will accrue more value. So compound is just borrow lend, DYDX is is basically a derivatives platform with borrow lend functionality enabled within it. Mm -hmm. And if you look at DYDX, because people are trading derivatives instead of just you know borrowing lending spot assets. Uh, the borrow and lend rates are consistently a lot higher than they are on compound. Mm. And so, you know, as an investor, then you have a decision to make. Do you want to invest in a borrow lend desk where you can maybe get a lot more AUM, but the margins are going to be thinner? Or do you want to invest in a derivatives exchange where it's a bit riskier, you know, you're, you're creating higher borrow lend markets, there's more fees flowing to, you know, either a protocol or a company. Um, but, you know, these things sit at different layers of the stack. And I think you could make the argument that, you know, if you were to rebuild compound all over again, maybe you would try to build you know, margin trading on top of it, or maybe you would try to build derivatives trading on top of it or, or anything um, just to bootstrap the fee base. And, you know, we're kind of starting to, to see people pick up on, okay, maybe build, building borrow and desk isn't enough. Maybe I need to build margin trading like Ave is trying to do. Um, you know, this is kind of where the space is going, where you're seeing platforms that they usually operate at this level is that kind of like try to move up or like move down to create more value and capture more value. Um, and that's something that's certainly, you know, something we think a lot about. Mm, interesting. Okay. So I have two follow-up questions on that. Um, the first is, so it seems to you that you're more bullish on, on this margin trading model than on the like more plain vanilla uh, borrow lend model. Have, have, do you have any investments in, in any of these platforms? Do I do uh, yeah, so um, we, I mean, we've invested in both, uh, I'll okay. say. Um, so, you know, we're certainly not like this one bad, other one good. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, Synthetics is, is coming out with features in the next you know, month and a half, two months. Uh, Feature Swap, which we led the last round of uh, and had a monster alpha, you know, that's coming out in the next three or four months. Mm. Um, you know, generally, we think the derivative space, you know, if you look at the open interest on, on platforms like BitMEX or or Huobi or OKX, like, you know, that's in the, the tens of billions of dollars a day on, on any given platform. Mm. At a certain point as an investor, you're, you're kind of just saying, all right, I'm going to aim for the largest total addressable market. And, you know, maybe I kind of hit somewhere, uh, but it, it ends up being a large win. Um, so I think, you know, those are investments we've made there. Uh, on the borrow lend side, we've also made investments, um, you know, a couple of protocols that are coming out uh, in kind of later this summer. 
which kind of have a new kind of take on, all right, can you bootstrap a credit score? Um, oh, that's one of the few areas that Compound and Aave don't really tackle yet is like, mm -hmm. how do you actually use Web2 data, whether it's credit cards or bank statements or whatever, to help people build a credit score on chain where they don't have to consistently over collateralize these loans. Can you um, say what, sorry, can you say what the name of, of that project yeah, it's, is? Yeah, it's a project called Teller, T-E-L-L-E-R. Um, and uh, yeah, it, like that's someone that we're super excited about because it's just doing something new where it's bringing mm -hmm. like, two data in in a way that's secure to kind of help people uh, think about and, and build a credit score. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, we invest in all layers of the stack. Uh, so, you know, we're certainly not bearish on any specific layer. Okay. And then um, the other thing I wanted to ask you was on, on this uh, dividend versus token burn um, models. Um, which do you see more more potential going forward? I mean, or does it just depend on the, the, the protocol, which works best? Um, how do we evaluate that? Every single protocol, just like every single business, has a, a slightly different business model, and they're, they're kind of like a fingerprint for, for the company. Mm -hmm. um, we think that the token economic model is kind of like a fingerprint for the open distributed network. Um, so to your point, every single one of them needs to be specific to that mm -hmm. specific network. But some of the pros and cons of each are um, when we're investing, one of the major themes that we look for is what is the community, what is the group of people that are supporting this network, and one of the best uh, things that we've seen with synthetics is that um, there's this this fervor around every Wednesday being payday because that's when the mm -hmm. dividend is issued. Um, so as you're thinking about community development as a as a protocol entrepreneur, that's one aspect that we promote as a great potential mechanism. On the flip side, uh, if you're doing a buy and burn from an investor perspective, um, it's a tax advantage way of distributing cash flows because. Mm -hmm you don't have the dividend, which once you receive it is, is technically taxable. Uh, that with a buy and burn means that you can have more ownership of the network, but without, without having to have that be a taxable event every single Wednesday. Um, oh, so these are just some of the different flavors that we like to think through um, and, and things that we like to promote with entrepreneurs that we're working with that are thinking about their token economics from the ground up. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think um, each of them is different and, and there are probably more philosophical uh, perspectives that you can get into arguing one way or another, but mm -hmm. um, I think they both work in different ways. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, Vince. Yeah, I think the other aspect is like there's a time dimension to it. Mm -hmm. Like you give someone a dividend, like that's that's money in their pocket, and that's interesting. They can do something with it, uh, but that's like a moment in time. You know, if you burn a maker token, it's burned forever. So like mm -hmm. all future participants in the network are also realizing that value. Mm -hmm. uh, I think like. Time is a very interesting construct when it comes to these these valuation models, uh, and you know certainly buy and burn has an advantage there. Um, what it lacks is like a consumer feedback loop that it creates when you give someone money and you're like, what are you what are you going to do with it? Are you mm. going to put it back into the ecosystem? Are you going to take it somewhere else? You know, are there incentives I can create for you to keep it in in this mm -hmm. closed feedback loop? Um, yeah, it's, it varies. Yeah, are, are earnings less? Um... Or, or I should say, are, are earnings more uncertain with with a, a buy and burn token mechanism? Because it really, in the end, will depend on kind of market appetite for, for the token. I mean, you can burn a token, but if people are selling it, you know, investors will still lose out. And, and in that sense, maybe a dividend is like a safer bet. Yeah, I, th I think both arguments to be made. If you have stable cash flows, uh, you're going to be fine either way. Um, but to Vance's point, the amplification of a buy and burn over time 
uh, I, I think builds um, in an exponential way or a nonlinear way, uh, as opposed to a dividend, which when you receive that dividend, it's distributed and it's gone. Um, you know, you're, you have to think about things on, on a uh, discounted cash flow perspective with the dividend, uh, whereas buy and burn, it's maybe more of a percentage ownership of the network over time. Mm. Um, and, and in the case of Maker, I think they're, they're probably the biggest in the buy and burn camp. Mm -hmm. uh, the model is that you buy and burn whenever you have positive cash flows, and then you inflate and dilute everyone when you have negative cash flows, you know, it, it can go both ways. Um, right. So the entire value accrual that you assume when you have the buy and burn with a maker token could be eliminated if, you know, like we saw on March 12th, there, there is an under collateralization of die and that needs to be remedied. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it really depends on the model. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you mentioned kind of the fervor of uh, the synthetics community uh, with these like paydays and, um, and that like immediately made me think of the Chainlink community. Um, you know, which also is super, you know, enthusiastic, is, I guess, a way to say it. Um, and so just wanted to get your thoughts as, as an investor, like, why do you think um, this, this happens? That there are so many people kind of incentivized to, um, like, pump <laughs> or shield a link. I think the funniest part about the Chainlink community is that, you know, we talk to Sergey on a fairly regular basis, and he, mm -hmm. like, doesn't use a meme. And it's like, that's perfect. Just like, keep not understanding, like it, it just generates a lot of excitement. I think that um, there's a few different things that, uh, you know, went into the creation of, of, the, of the link brains. Um, and I think the first is, is, you know, a large total addressable market. Like if you think about where value might start to accrue mm. in a world where our contracts are, are relatively commonplace, you know, the natural choke point is when you're feeding in data uh, to that blockchain. You know, there's you know, there's a set of people who have access to the data. They can, you know, they have some pricing power, you know, over the kind of the demand side of the smart contract requesters. So, you know, there's, you can very rationally reason through a world where Chainlink is accruing, you know, some fraction of the value that Ethereum is accruing. I think that's the first, you know, and, and most important thing. Mm -hmm. uh, second, uh, Sergey and the team are just incredible entrepreneurs. You know, all they do is focus on this one problem. They do it extremely well. You know, they're on point with marketing, uh, integrations, you know, pushing the limits of, of really what you can do uh, on an Oracle service and redefining what an Oracle service is. You know, that's kind of, you know, obviously the second part. Uh, and the third part is that, you know, I think the best communities start start very small. Um, and, and, you know, Chainlink, when it was, you know, in its infancy in, in late 2017, when we found it, was predominantly, um, you know, found on Reddit and 4chan communities. Not a lot of people knew about it. And, and even when people tried to, to promote it and get it out to a larger community, the people in Reddit and 4chan would, would literally uh, kind of vote it down or report it so that other people really couldn't know about Chainlink. And that, and that preserved the smallness of the community for quite some time. And that smallness bred fervor and that fervor bred excitement. And once the team started putting the Oracle solution on mainnet and delivering on some of their more loftier expectations, you know, that excitement just exploded. But it really all starts with smallness in these communities and, and building, you know, identity and something that is able to be, you know, memes. Like the Oracle problem is three words and, and pretty much everybody understands what that is. And you can extrapolate what type of value you might capture and what, you know, the token might do. Um, so it's very simple. You know, that's one of the things that we counsel, you know, almost every the projects which we invest in is that you have to have something that is short, it's punchy, it's, it's descriptive, it's, it's prescriptive to people. 
Um, and I think that, you know, that's something that Chainlink did very unintentionally well. Mm -hmm. um, first, I think it was six or nine months, there was no communication from Chainlink to the you know, outside world. It was just like, we're building, we're not going to update you on anything that's not technical related, like, sorry. And so just mm -hmm. as people read the Bitcoin white paper and didn't really have, you know, Satoshi to ask questions to, they made something of it on their own and they kind of like made it their own ideology. That very much happened with Chainlink as well. And the only thing I'd add is uh, just thinking about the timelines here, I, I think is really interesting because uh, Chainlink launched in September of 2017. Uh, it had a run up from about nine or 11 cents to a dollar 40. Um, and then it dropped down to maybe 18 or, or 17 cents. And, mm -hmm. and a major thing that we uh, have noticed within the community because we've been a part of it the entire time is this true sense of being an underdog. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the market never fully recognized Chainlink. Uh, it still does, and I still, I still think that it's, uh, uh, it's just, m it's confused about what the Oracle problem is and how Chainlink can really solve it. Um, and, and I think that underdog story pervades this cohesive community uh, at the base base layer because everybody remembers what it was like when we were all in the Slack together talking and, and thinking about what Chainlink could be potentially as you know the price was dropping 90%. And one of the things that got us really excited about synthetics is I think there's a lot of congruency between the Chainlink story and the synthetics story as well. They started off even, they pivoted, also saw a 90% decline in token price. Um, and have come through in amazing fashion uh, against all odds. And mm -hmm. I mean, what stories, uh, I, and I can't think of any, in, in the blockchain space where you have a successful pivot. Um, so the people that were on that journey uh, from day one and, and the team definitely being a couple of them, um, it, it just builds this cohesive nature that I think is is really hard to disrupt in mm -hmm. uh, place. And, and that I think is ultimately what helps these distributed networks win. Yeah, um, I, I love to have this background of the early Link Marine community. I, I, I didn't know that. Um, it's so interesting. So, okay, so you, you, you mentioned um, how I, they both had, or, or at least Link had this kind of underdog mentality, but I mean, the token is up, you know, it's more than doubled in, in price in the past year. Um, synthetics is up even more so. Um, so, I mean, to you, is it? I mean, has has is it still undervalued? And of course, I mean, you'll say yes, but <laughs> but um, if if you can kind of walk me through your reasoning why it's still a good investment after this huge rally, these two tokens have had. Caveat with whatever Michael's about to say. Uh, this is not financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think it, we don't really think about it in terms of um, what the price is. That, that's not something that we evaluate. We evaluate these projects on a um, non-price, non-financial um, specific basis because what we're looking for is the full realization of the product or the capability that was promoted in the white paper or the original thesis or um, the end state of the development of these projects. And I, I would say there's basically only one uh, asset in this space that has maybe realized its full vision, which is Bitcoin. Uh, even Ethereum is still under construction. Um, mm. Chainlink is absolutely still there as well. Um, and yes, it, it may have been the most successful blockchain network in the past year, but it still feels like we're fighting an underdog story. Um, and it still feels like there's so much further to go. 
um, and obviously synthetics is there as well. And, and so we think about it uh, and we, you know, as investors, we will eventually have to return capital to our LPs, um, but we haven't sold the, a single asset um, and we won't for a while, I believe. Um, we, we want to see these things through, you know, whether the price is up, down or sideways. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's generally how we view investing in the space. And mm -hmm. while others may be looking for a quick flip, we are long-term uh, venture style investment holders of assets. Um, and, and I think that could be a dif differentiation when um, you're talking about uh, certain investors who, who aren't going to have the same perspective. Um, mm. and, and so we really want to partner with the core teams that are building these protocols and, and see it through. Okay. Um, Vance, you have anything to add? Um, yeah, I mean, it, so Chainlink right now is in like like V05. Like it's it's not even, we're not even at like, like, like one. So right now what's, what's happening with Chainlink is that um, they're trying to bootstrap the marketplace. They're getting a lot of node operators that can provide really high quality price data. Mm -hmm. And they're vetting all of these, these providers and they're making sure that they have, you know, strong uptime and strong DevOps. And, you know, when price feeds go down at two in the morning, like there's somebody on PagerDuty to figure it out. Um, and on the other side, they're building out all the integrations. So, you know, they're powering probably more than 60 or 70% of DeFi at this point. Um, and, and that's, you know, kind of the other side of the equation. You know, eventually what Chainlink is going to do is they're going to open up the uh, node provider ecosystem to anybody that has these price reference feeds or any other data that's interesting, whether it be stocks or Forex or commodities or sports data or weather data or whatever. Um, and they're op they'll open that entirely up. They'll start kind of their staking program uh, where people are earning link programmatically uh, based on any of the requests that come through. Um, and really that'll be phase, you know, one of, of this network. And, you know, I think getting to that phase is, is like the first point at which we would say, okay, this is like where things are starting to, you know, solidify in terms of full vision. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I think, you know, definitely one point. Uh, but also generally we see like price feeds is, is the least interesting part of, of oracles. Like mm -hmm. the definition of what oracles do to do, you know, you know, off-chain computation to attest certain things, um, without revealing them to, you know, act as a de facto scaling solution. Um, you know, the blur, the boundaries between what smart contracts are and what oracles are, are, are really going to start to blur over the next kind of three, six months. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, for us, we have a vision of what Chainlink will become and, and we're tracking alongside of that. So, you know, we're, we're very happy with how fast the team is moving. Um, and, you know, as long as Chainlink has that underdog mentality, we think that it's going to be extremely successful. It's, you know, the most valuable ERC-20, I think, um, and it's never taken on real VC funding. And I think that point escapes a lot of people. Uh, and, you know, I think Ethereum has an obsession with, with blessing certain projects, whether it be mm -hmm. Maker or whether it be Compound. And then if you don't get the blessing, you're kind of like, you know, out in the cold. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, this is, this is a, a point to the contrary, which says that, you know, the silent majority of people are really interested in stuff like this. And even if you don't have the kind of the, the buy-in of a lot of the Ethereum thought leaders, you know, you can really, you know, make a go of, of building a successful technology product. Uh, so, so you really think uh, Link doesn't have the blessing of kind of Ethereum or, you know, however? <laughs> I, I mean, there was, you know, a year and a half where Chainlink was really um, derided as an Oracle solution. Um, mm. 
uh, and this was when kind of Maker's Oracle solution was was more prominent. Uh, but you know, I think that having that blessing is is less important than it used to be, which is good because it represents yeah. not only kind of the maturing of the ecosystem into something less tribal, but also the increasing decentralization of the Ethereum community, where there's mm -hmm. not kind of a few arbiters of, of what is good or what is bad. Um, and I think that's just great for the entire space. Definitely agree. And um, about synthetics, I wanted to ask you, uh, Kane had this uh, great op-ed on, on the Defiant saying, you know, why um, synthetics will never include um, permissioned assets on, on its system and why that, that's so important to him and, and to the platform. And this is obviously in, in con contraposition with um, Maker, which is, is already including permissioned assets as, as collateral. So obviously there's pros and cons to, 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 this, um, to this take. And I, I guess a, a con is that it, it might uh, limit the growth of, of, of the assets that can, can be in the platform because it just by definition um, reduces the, the, the liquidity that, that can go on there. So um, what's, what's your view on this? I mean, is this something that, that concerns you or do you like this approach? So uh, I, I will say one of the things that um, we really respect about Kane is his philosophical approach um, and his strong perspectives. Uh, because I think you know, he is the prototypical uh, head of the protocol that we're looking for when we, we think about other new investments. Um, and this is another example of him, him taking a, uh, a philosophical um, perspective. Um, we use USDC um, for operations and we uh, have a lot of it just as a, as a company, as a firm. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so we're not ones to say that it's, it's something that we aren't going to dabble in and aren't going to use um, for our own purposes. But um, we completely uh, agree with, with Kane's philosophical approach. Um, and if we really think about where the liquidity, where the collateral potential could come from, the two largest pools within the crypto ecosystem are, are completely permissionless and completely decentralized, uh, those being Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, and so while it's true that uh, it, it's possible that right now the, the um, ability to have a centralized collateral uh, may help in, in times of need as they did with Maker, um, we think that the ability to have the only permissionless stablecoin uh, with real volume, with real asset value on Ethereum, having that be SUSD is a potential advantage um, in, in the fact, in the face of uh, DAI or, or USDC, which are backed by um, centralized assets. So it, it's a huge advantage right now. Um, I think as the industry matures, we'll see where the collateral pool starts to gravitate. If it's WBTC, if it's USDC as the, mm -hmm. as the largest pools, you know, yes, it could hamper growth, um, but we are going to back uh, Kane's perspective and, and we're going to be behind him and the team uh, all the way. Um, and if this is the way that they want to go, then, then we're going to see it through as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know, just because, uh, so the way you interact with the synthetic system as a trader is, you know, you have USDC or USDT and you have to buy SUSD in order to trade mm. on the synthetic exchange contract. So, you know, that peg uh, is, is basically maintained on a curve at the moment where there's a lot of SUSD and there's a lot of other USDT, DAI, 
uh, the USD. So you can get from centralized assets like USDC or USDT into SUSD um, pretty frictionlessly. So I will say that, you know, Kane's perspective of the collateral pool of synthetics will not be centralized is a lot different than, you know, centralized assets will never have a bridge to interact with this. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, that's an important uh, kind of demarcation. The other thing I'll say is, you know, investing in protocols and math and like, you know, total addressable markets and like layers of the technology stack, like that's all super awesome. But 95% of this is like who is sitting in the chair mm. uh, and like doing the work and like yelling at people and like, you know, cracking the whip and like doing all that good stuff. Like, and it's hard to find, like, there's only so many Leshners, there's only so many Canes, there's only so many uh, runes, you know, we can think of, you know, probably one hand of protocol entrepreneurs that are, that are of kind of the tier one caliber mm -hmm. that can really take a network from, you know, zero to a billion. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, that's the real scarce resource in crypto is, is those incredible entrepreneurs mm -hmm. because, you know, almost two and a half, whatever years into a bear market, like the only people left are kind of the renegades and the true believers. And that just means that the, the filtering has been so heavy. That there's not that many entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that we're the most excited about is, you know, the interest from high quality, you know, consumer technology people you know, around the world into crypto, just kind of replenishing the entrepreneur um, kind of well so that we can kind of start to you know, draw some fresh perspectives um, into it. Because, you know, at this point, uh, I think that we do need to kind of uh, expand a little bit larger and, and make the value prop a little bit clearer for developers, entrepreneurs uh, to build on top of blockchain. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting perspective that the scarce resource in, in DeFi and crypto is, you know, quality entrepreneurs, especially after a long bear market, I, I guess. Yeah, that, that, that has to be the case. Um, and that, that leads me to, you know, I, I wanted to ask about the, the difference that, that you've seen with, with your experience investing um, in crypto so far as a VC with what uh, investing in traditional startups is like. I mean, I, I guess like one important uh, difference we talked about is um, you're investing in, in tokens instead of equity, or, or maybe you're investing in both. Um, uh, yeah, uh, get, get into that in, in, in your answer, uh, kind of how, how you're investing in, in these protocols. Um, and, you know, investing in tokens means you get a, liquidity right away and and maybe that allows you to do some some trading um and yeah just the business models itself are, are so different um the, the the type of talent is different like it, it just seems like two completely um di different worlds uh because the space is so new um and so so yeah when i wanted to hear from from you like what are kind of the 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 main things that that makes uh, in VC investing in crypto uh, unique, and and um, how is uh, an, an a VC's role in this space different from a VC's role in like traditional startups? So uh, you're exactly correct. They are they are absolutely different uh, in almost every way, shape, and form. Other than the fact that you're giving money to get an asset, and and hopefully the asset goes up. But you know that that's about it. Um, Everything from what the cap table looks like and how it's structured, uh, how we evaluate these different protocols versus what we'd be looking for with the company. 
um, to what the exit opportunities look like and how we manage those. Mm. I mean, everything is different. So, so a couple examples, um, a token cap table um, is going to be, in most cases, is going to be inflationary by nature, um, where the ownership that you have over time, if there's tokens that are being distributed out over time, um, that, goes, that percentage of ownership goes up, whereas at every single successive stage of a, a fundraising for a company, you're, you're diluted down as an entrepreneur. And, and so having that difference is something that we spend a lot of time with potential um, companies, uh, protocols, networks, uh, just walking them through the dynamics of that. You know, mm. you have a small percentage now, it's gonna grow over time. You normally have 60% at the end of a seed round, well, well now, uh, it, that could be 20% by the time you do an IP. I mean, all of these things need to be talked about. Um, mm. Sorry, and just to interrupt for one second to make sure I got this right. So th that's it's inflationary because you start out kind of owning a piece of equity and then that might increase because you're also owning tokens in the case they, they do an ICO or? No, no. So sorry, what I'm saying is uh, if you have 10% of the tokens, but then tokens uh, are distributed to stakers and as many of these networks are, or they're distributed mm. to participants. You know, if you are an owner of a token, uh, you want to incentivize active participation in that network. And usually that's in the form of more tokens. Um, and, and so it, it would be like Robert Leshner who owns some tokens based on his, his Compound Labs relationship, but then is also uh, a lender or a borrower within Compound and earning more comp tokens okay. by, by participating as a user. Um, so, so that aspect is fundamentally different. Um, mm. the, uh, the staging of these investments, you know, we break the world down into pre-launch, post-launch and growth. Whereas a venture investor in, in the uh, traditional equity markets would say C, Series A, Series B. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we think about different staging and, and what needs to happen at each one of those different stages. Um, another major difference I would say, and we've talked about this, is our evaluation uh, criteria involving community and, mm. and what the community is doing. And community for us is super important because what that ends up happening is building the norms for governance. It, mm. it, it starts to transition once you uh, fully decentralize into what the governance model is for the network. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's also really difficult to build governance models from the start and have them be the right ones at the end. Uh, and so you have to have governance be a moving target as the community develops. Mm -hmm. um, and so for, for all of these different uh, reasons, um, there, things are different. The things that are saying uh, are the long-termism, uh, long-term horizon of how investments need to be made in this space. And, and I think you know, we've come to the conclusion that there's, there's three things you need to do when you're investing in this space. The first is uh, you have to be non-consensus and right. Um, you have to hold on, for, hold on to the assets for a very long time. Um, and you have to be active in the ways that you participate in the networks. And, and so for us, you know, those are sort of the three things that we try to focus on, um, trying to get to the bottom of how we can participate and be as active and helpful as possible, um, having a multi-year time horizon, and then also thinking about what are the things that nobody else is thinking about and, and how can we take advantage of our perspectives. Mm. Yeah, uh, I can't think of anything more terrifying than, than writing a check to a to a protocol and being like all right let me know how it works out we'll be back in two years it's like <laughs> it's like that is just like so irresponsible uh, mm -hmm. it's hard to even fathom for us like you know it's active participation is born out of a desire to uh 
uh, you know, support the entrepreneurs we we can invest in, but also like you need more perspectives, like you need more eyes, like this isn't a company, like the protocol entrepreneur founded it, sure, but like this is everybody's. Like I don't think you would catch Vitalik saying like this is my network, like it's it's everyone's like it's mm -hmm. dependent on the efforts of a community. Um and so, you know, a lot of our our participation is just, you know, out of desire to support people, but also out of out of fear that, you know, if it isn't shepherded the right way, you know, it, it's going to just be subject to one person's vision. Mm. Uh, or you know facilities or, or whatever and so i think that that's uh you know part of what we do and and sorry to add one more point i, yeah. I think uh tactically the way that we do this is we actually have two separate companies mm. uh, within framework we have framework ventures which is the investment side where we make investments from and, and that's uh, an investment company but then we also have a company called framework labs which uh is i, I guess best described as our development company so this is oh, where interesting. We um, build products, we um, build tools and features to be keepers and networks or liquidators on platforms. Um, and we also do things like provide liquidity. So we're, um, you know, big market makers or traders on platforms that we're mm. trying to bootstrap. Um, we'll provide collateral to bootstrap the network. And, and what we really do is we put our money where our mouth is and support our investments not just with initial dollars in to build the networks, but once they launch, once they are hit that growth phase um, to, to be the most active participants in the network. Mm. I think that that's such an interesting difference with traditional investment, just how much uh, more active investors are kind of required to be in, in DeFi especially. Because yeah, it's uh, first like it's, it's so early that you can actually make a material difference in, in the community. Um, and second, because yeah, because of the very nature of these protocols, you actually like own um, a piece of it and, and not just because you're, you're an investor, but you know, you can participate in, yeah, staking is one, but also governance. And so with comp, like um, the um, in investors can, can make like actual, meaningful um, decisions in, in how the, the protocol is run. And I think they're expected to uh, being, uh, you know, holders of a large percentage of, of tokens. Um, so it's like, it, it becomes a little bit of your responsibility to be really active in, in, in your own investment. Um, so yeah, I guess it, it takes like a, a, a special kind of investor to go into crypto. Like you can't just like hand, hand that check, like, like you yeah. said. <laughs> This is, you know, this is all we do, like, mm -hmm. at all. Uh, like, we live together, we work together, you know, we are on crypto Twitter 24-7, we're looking at products 24-7. You know, I think that crypto is not a spectator sport. Like, you got to be in the game. Like, you can't really be on the sidelines. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's something that, you know, along with a few other characteristics that, that make us a lot different, that this is, you know, all we live and breathe and, and these are predominantly the markets that, that we grew up in. Um, I think a lot of, you know, VCs grew, grew up in, in equity markets and, you know, taking a company public and how does that work? You know, we grew up in kind of the, you know, the launch of Ethereum, the kind of, you know, bull market of 2017, you know, the, the bear market of the past three years and, and now the resurgence, like it's, it's really hard to understand this stuff if it's not from first principles. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, if you didn't start in, in, 2015 and you're not 
you know, reasonably, you know, young to kind of really participate in this, you know, as a, as a full contact sport, you know, it's hard to really get a sense of what's going on. Mm. And um, I mean, speaking of governance, I mean, this is a little bit of, of a top topic, but, you know, the, uh, there was obviously the, the launch of Comp um, recently, and it was, you know, hugely successful with a big rally on the first day. Um, and I wanted to ask you on your, your, your thoughts on governance tokens, which, you know, to, to me, they're a little bit um, confusing in why people, in kind of the, um, the why they're attractive to, to, to traders. Because in essence, what they do is they allow for uh, the community to participate in governance. And, and supposedly that's all. I mean, you can maybe expect uh, people to vote in some, some sort of dividends or, or, or some sort of way for these tokens to, to um, earn value over time. But right now, that's, that's not the case, at least for, for comp. Um, and for you know other uh, governance token models. So, to you, is is it just like a a, a way of of earning like a piece of of these protocols and and hoping that later on that there will be some business model baked into the token? The way I, I think that we can look at governance specific tokens is uh, it, it's kind of like wishing for more wishes when you have the ability to create anything uh, through the, the governance proposal process, whatever they are for the specific token, you can create anything. And as this open blank canvas design space of tokens starts to mature, just like we saw in 2019, there was a resurgence of token valuation models. Mm -hmm. I, I think as we start to form up what those are and how they work and why one is better than another, or, or more specifically for that asset, why one would work versus another, that could be something that's voted in. Um, as we think about what governance models work best for these tokens, and, and that can be changed. You know, those, those things can all happen by the use of the governance aspect. And, and just by launching a token that's governance specific, it means that you have pure flexibility as to where, wherever you want to take it over the next couple of mm. years or decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's how we see governance tokens. And, and I think at some point, you know, it, the other way to think about this is um, comparing it to startup equity. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's just governance, that's really what you get with shares of a startup. Um, there aren't really cash flows that you have uh, uh, control of or, or um, the ability to, to gain by investing in an early stage startup. Um, there aren't really uh, any other aspects other than voting mm -hmm. for things like should the company be sold, should the company go public. Um, and that, I think, is probably the best corollary to thinking about how early protocol uh, governance tokens should be viewed. Uh, and, and maybe some of them will become Google, where you have this always-on money spigot, and now your Google shares are, are ability to have uh, a valuation for that. Um, but I think that happens so much later in the lifetime of these uh, early-stage pro protocols and companies that um, right now it, it's really sort of akin to a startup share. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, all right. And then I guess uh, we, we should be wrapping up now, but it's, it's been such an interesting conversation. Uh, and, and to, to, to finish, um, just interested in, you know, what are the, the next things that uh, you're, you're excited about? And maybe if we can get it to be more specific, um, where do you think, or uh, what use case do you think are, are the ones that will you know, bring the next wave of ad adoption 
in, in DeFi? Um, the next wave of adoption. Uh, so the, the, there's large and immediately addressable markets in crypto today, and those are decentralized exchanges. Mm. Um, and the centralized exchanges of the world uh, have a few different problems. Uh, I don't actually think that like, you know, you don't hold your own funds is that big of an issue. And like, you know, you're subject to the, uh, to the whims of Arthur Hayes. Um, but like the real problems are, you know, if I have a position on it on BitMEX and like someone's just stop loss hunting, which is, you know, for, for people who don't know, you're intentionally manipulating uh, the order book to try to liquidate people uh, and gain those fees. Um, you know, that's a big, big issue. Uh, and there's, you know, no transparency, there's no accountability. You know, those are the pain points that are real and which will drive people off those exchanges. Mm -hmm. um, and then the question is, you know, where do they go and why? Uh, they could go to other centralized exchanges. Those largely have or will have the same set of problems just because of the way the incentives are set up. Um, but on the other side of that is, is, is DeFi. And, you know, the value prop that exists when you have this intersection of AMMs, leverage, and synthetic tokens, where you can effectively replicate the centralized exchange stack without any of the bad stuff, without any KYC, um, with transparency as to how the order book and oracles operate. Um, and I think that will be big. The things that are holding us back there right now are, you know, obviously the construction of those protocols. And, and we've been investing in, in the new derivatives platforms for about a year now. And, and we're kind of in the gestation period where we're going through code audits and code freezes and, and making sure everything is, is good and final for the release. And we expect those to be out this summer. So that'll be, that'll be a large uh, landmark event. Um, but to really, and, and that'll bring over, you know, call it 10% of, of that volume on, on centralized exchanges. I think Wait, the, Sorry, are, are you, are you saying that this summer you're expecting new DEXs uh, and, and like margin trading platforms to launch or is it like the existing, existing platform will have you know, new capabilities that they're launching. So Synthetix will be launching features. FutureSwap will be launching features. Um, there's a couple others that will be launching features, but but those first features okay. platforms will be the first time we're able to have you know, leverage and funding rates. And and there's so many externalities to the creation of funding rates in the sense that you know people can ARB DeFi to CFI, they can ARB DeFi to DeFi. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of value, and 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 a lot of those features products are, are time constructs where you're charge the funding rate every eight hours. So people will stay on crypto longer. It's a more sticky mm -hmm. And so that'll be quite important. Okay. But you know, in, until, and that will happen and that will be big. But uh, the thing that I think everybody is really waiting for is, is scalability. Whether it's you know, EIP 1559 helping out a little bit or whether it's layer two solutions fully coming into their own, like the optimism demos we've seen. Um, that, is, that is the main thing that I think will, will really kind of, you know, make the trickle into a flood from these centralized exchanges, which, you know, effectively just take all the money for themselves to this more decentralized world where things are more transparent, the community ownership is real, um, and, you know, the products are at future parity. Um, so that's kind of what I'm excited about. And I, I think that's probably. Yeah, it's exactly what I'm excited about. The only other thing I would add is uh, what this means is the consumerization of DeFi is real. Um, and we're starting to see that with things like Dharma and their uh, dollars to uh, Dharma account, savings account. Um, that is something that I can show my mom and say, hey, is this something that you want? Um, it's, you know, 15 times the national average and savings rate. Um, and then the other side of it would be, um, as we mentioned with Teller, being able to bridge the web two and web three ecosystem to get more effective 
uh, rates or more um, effective use of capital, uh, I, I think that is where we're going to start to see this uh, instead of 150% over collateralization, we can actually have 75% collateralization uh, mm -hmm. so long as there's that mechanism into into CFI, into into Web2. So mm -hmm. as DeFi starts to bridge this fully decentralized with the centralized uh, when it comes to product features that enable the consumerization, I think we're going to start to see a number of those products launch in the next six months. And, and that's, I think, where we start to see an inflow of new users that previously wouldn't understand this crypto native, uh, crypto specific ecosystem versus something where they you can show them a product and say, hey, is this something that you want? Um, so that that's those things, uh, in addition to the scalability, I think will enable the consumerization. Awesome. Yeah, no, that, that um, makes a lot of sense. DEXs, uh, derivatives, uh, the, co the consumerization or abstracting crypto from, from these platforms, making them more usable, scalability for sure. Um, and it's, it's incredible how much DeFi has grown in, in the past year or so. So these, uh, these changes will continue to bring it forward uh, so much faster uh, still. So um, Vanta, Michael, thank you so much. For, for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Such an interesting conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much, Camila. We're both really looking forward to the book and, and all the good stuff with the Define. Yeah, okay. thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. Awesome. I'll continue to interview all the major founders and influencers in this emerging space. When DeFi eats the world, you can say you heard them here first. Tune in next week.